Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, independent Catholic journalism, and the host of this show, Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we take the journalistic leftovers out of the fridge and heat them up, only this week we don't have to rely on leftovers because we got fresh food to serve up. Here's what we've got for this week. We begin with PF in the K. That is, Pope Francis today begins a three-day visit to the Central Asian nation of Kazakhstan. Now, whether this is providence, planning, or just dumb luck, Kazakhstan seems to be where a pope goes whenever the world is in flames and there is some confusion about where the Vatican stands about all of it. So we will unpack why this trip is of significance. Second, the three empty chairs. While Pope Francis is in Kazakhstan, there are three conversation partners that he is going to be addressing, none of whom, as it turns out, are likely to be physically present, but nevertheless, their shadows, so to speak, are going to hang over this visit in a significant way. We'll explain who they are and why it all matters. Third, God save the queen. And now, of course, God save the king. Queen Elizabeth II dies at the age of 96 after 70 years on the British throne, triggering a global outpouring of grief and tributes. We'll explain why there is a lesson in the affection that the entire planet seems to have felt for the queen, for popes and other monarchs as well. And then finally, a series of shout-outs. We've got two big thank yous to deliver this week. We'll explain who, why, and what it is we're grateful for. All that and more is waiting for you on Last Week in the Church. So please, for the love of God, don't go anywhere. Stick around. All right, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday, September 13th in the year of our Lord, 2022. Don't know where you are today, but I can tell you for sure where the Pope is. The Pope today is in the Central Asian nation of Kazakhstan, beginning a three-day visit, September 13th to the 15th. And it is, I mean, from a certain point of view, you could argue that maybe, you know, on the scale of papal visits, this isn't that big a deal. I mean, to be honest with you, there are many media organizations in the world who either had to struggle to justify why they were going to be covering this trip or who took a pass. I mean, look, you know, this is not like the Pope going to the United States or the Pope going to Russia or the Pope going to China, some place that would have obvious diplomatic and political significance. It's also not like the Pope going to a traditional Catholic nation. I mean, like it's, you know, it's not like he's going to Brazil or Mexico, the two largest Catholic countries in the world, where you can pretty much guarantee there are going to be crowds in the tens of millions who will flock to see the Pope wherever he goes. You know, Kazakhstan, even though physically it's enormous, I mean, look, geographically, this is the largest majority Muslim nation in the world. It's the largest landlocked nation in the world. It shares longer land borders with both Russia and China. 
than any other country in the world, but it still only has a population of 19 million people. I mean, it has the, one of the lowest population densities of any sovereign country on the planet. I mean, basically speaking, very few people actually live there. And I don't know anybody who would put Kazakhstan on their top 10 list of most globally relevant, significant, consequential countries. So, you know, at a certain level, you might say, all right, so the Pope is going, so what? Well, let me try to explain the so what. I think there are two things that make this trip particularly significant. First of all, this is the second time that a pope is going to the country of Kazakhstan. The first time was Pope John Paul II, now, of course, Saint John Paul II, in 2001. And let me try to make this point as clearly as I can. When he went, it wasn't just any random moment in 2001. It was September 2001. Now, I don't think I probably need to explain to you what else happened in the month of September 2001. It was 9-11. And John Paul went nine days after the terrorist attacks in New York, the Twin Tower attacks, that left a permanent scar, not simply on the architecture, the, the skyline of New York, and also, of course, the Pentagon, and that field in Pennsylvania where Flight 93 went down. But it left a scar on the soul of the American nation. I think all of us would probably say we never really felt the same after that. Whatever innocence we had left as of, as of the year 2001 probably was taken from us by the attacks on that day. And of course, it wasn't just the United States, the entire world felt different after the attacks of 9-11. So John Paul, now that trip, of course, was planned well in advance. There was no way for the Vatican to know that the attacks of 9-11 were going to happen just before John Paul went. That there actually was a great deal of speculation that John Paul might cancel his trip because of the terrorist attacks of 9-11. I mean, you know, even though Kazakhstan was not Afghanistan, it was hundreds of miles away from where these terrorist attacks were conceived and where their authors took refuge. Nevertheless, it was basically the same neighborhood, and there was great concern that because of security and other reasons, the Pope might not go. Nevertheless, John Paul was determined, and he actually went. My point is that the last time a Pope went to Kazakhstan, the world was in flames. Well, Ladies and gentlemen, Pope Francis, you know, 21 years later, is going to Kazakhstan again, and I think we would all have to acknowledge the world is once again in flames. In this case, not because of a terrorist attack on the United States, but rather because of the Russian war in Ukraine, and the deeply unstable global situation all of that has created. I mean, I guess the point here is that Kazakhstan, despite the small size of its population, despite the, I mean, to be honest, relatively marginal position perhaps it ordinarily occupies in global affairs, nevertheless, whenever a pope goes there, something big <laughs> is going down. So I think that's probably the first reason this is important. Secondly, 
We should not forget the ostensible, that is the official reason that Pope Francis is going, which is that Kazakhstan is hosting its World Congress of Religions. This is an event the country hosts every three years. It has since 1993. And it is a gathering of leaders of the world's most important religions who in this moment are coming together at a time when the witness and the leadership of religious organizations is perhaps at an all-time premium because the conflicts that we are witnessing around the world, whether it's the Russian-led war in Ukraine, whether it's ethnic conflicts up and down Africa, whether it's the continuing threat of terrorism, or whether it is unrest in some parts of the world that are currently under, well, for lack of a better word, part of the Chinese sphere of influence. I mean, I'm thinking not only about China, but also Hong Kong, Myanmar, other parts of the world. All of these global hotspots have religion as an important component of what's going on for both good and ill. And so the Pope's continuing outreach, his attempt, if you like, to be the global chaplain of religious moderates, that is, religiously serious people who are nevertheless opposed to violence, that's incredibly important. So look, this trip matters. Now, let me just say this. I was on John Paul's trip to Kazakhstan 21 years ago. I remember it vividly. I remember my own family at the time being deeply scared <laughs> that I was going to be on this trip, even though I was trying to tell them, look, Grandpa, Grandma, I, I'm traveling with the Pope. I mean, I think I'm going to be okay. And I was. We all were. There was no security threat whatsoever. But I do remember like how unsettled the atmosphere was at the time. Here's another thing I remember about that trip. How difficult it was to figure out what position the Vatican actually wanted to take about what was going to happen post 9-11. Because here's how it unfolded. Once again, the Pope was only there, I, I believe that trip was three days, so it was analogous to Pope Francis's journey. Day one, John Paul II gives an Angelus address, that's his traditional noontime address, in which he uses the following line. He says, I pray with all my heart that the world will remain at peace. Now, bear in mind, that came at a moment where everybody knew the United States was getting ready to go to war in Afghanistan. That intention had been made clear by the Bush administration. Preparations were already underway. And so that line from John Paul II, certainly by those of us on the trip and by the rest of the world's media, was sort of spun up into an anti-war statement by the Pope, as if he were sort of taking on the Bush administration. Now, the next day, the Vatican spokesperson at the time, Spanish layman Joaquin Navarro-Bolz, gave an interview to one of the journalists on the trip in which he said instead that the Vatican understood that the United States had a legitimate right to self-defense. He actually compared President Bush to the father of a family who feels the need, the understandable and defensible need, to defend his family and basically said the Vatican is not going to stand in his way. That 
was taken by journalists, again, those of us on the trip and pretty much everybody else, as a kind of green light from the Vatican for the American assault on Afghanistan. The next day, the guy who was the head of Vatican Radio at the time, Italian Jesuit father Federico Lombardi, who later went on to become the Vatican spokesman himself under Pope Benedict XVI, Father Lombardi wrote out a statement in longhand, basically saying that the only thing that matters is what the Pope said in his Angelus, and that he didn't quite say this, but the gist of it was that anybody else speaking in the Pope's name and that, of course, would have included Navarro Valls, well, it's just not the same thing. And so the operative statement is what the Pope said. That took us back to, we really have no idea what in the world they're trying to say. And I, I think that reflects the fact that the Vatican back then was trying to balance two different imperatives. One was the legitimate right to self-defense of a nation that's been struck, but two, the desire that peace would prevail and that the world would not find itself in a kind of global conflagration. Now, in many ways, isn't that reminiscent of the situation today? People right now are trying to figure out what exactly Pope Francis is trying to say about the conflict in Ukraine. On the one hand, he seems deeply sympathetic to the Ukrainian cause. On the other hand, he sort of seems to be bending over backwards not to antagonize Russia. And once again, it's a little confusing, but I think, once again, the Vatican is trying to balance in some ways the same two imperatives. I think it understands the right of a sovereign country to defend itself when it's under assault, but on the other hand, it also doesn't want to do anything that could be seen as encouraging a wider conflict. Now, that may be confusing, but I think it's also entirely understandable. The other thing I would just say about, a, about Kazakhstan is this that when John Paul went there in 2001, one of the things that impressed so many of us is the religious matrix of Kazakhstan. It is a country that's about 70% Muslim, but also about 25% Christian, almost entirely Russian Orthodox. And unlike many other parts of the world where the relationship between a Muslim majority and a Christian minority is problematic, it never has been in Kazakhstan, because here's the thing. Those Russian Orthodox got there in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Mostly, they were sent there as political prisoners under Stalin. In other words, they arrived in chains. They were sent there because Kazakhstan has brutal winters. It was like Siberia, and frankly, the expectation is that many of them would die. But instead, they were received with love and care by the Muslims who lived in Kazakhstan. Many of them, their lives were saved because they were taken in and cared for by those Muslims. They ended up becoming dear friends. You know, the stories of friendships and even intermarriage between Muslims and Christians in Kazakhstan, they're the stuff of legend. And in some ways, when John Paul went right after 9-11, that story seemed providential. It seemed a kind of counterpoint to the dominant global narrative of the day. We'll see if it can have the same effect when Pope Francis goes again. All right, second point. While Pope Francis is in Kazakhstan, obviously, those journalists, once again covering the Pope's trip, will be paying attention to who he meets with and what he says directly to them. But you know, in some ways, the biggest stories are going to be who he doesn't 
meet with and what he doesn't actually say out loud. And here's why. There are three empty chairs on this trip. You all know what the empty chair is, right? In American politics, if I'm running for mayor and I want my opponent to debate me and the opponent refuses, then I'll, you know, gin up this event and I'll debate an empty chair just to make the point the guy isn't there, right? Well, there are some empty chairs on this visit. I mean, let's begin with the most obvious empty chair. It belongs to Patriarch Kirill of Moscow, head of the Russian Orthodox Church. Patriarch Kirill was supposed to go to this interfaith congress in Kazakhstan, and it was widely expected that he and Pope Francis would have a summit meeting. They would be able to sit down and talk out the situation in Ukraine and try to sort of compare notes. However, late last month, that is in late August, a spokesperson for Kirill announced that he actually is not going to be going, didn't give any real explanation as to why, but in any event, bottom line, he's not going to be there, so there's not going to be any Patriarch-Pope summit. Now, I mean, speculation is that Kirill simply didn't want to face hard questions from either Pope Francis or the press corps following him as to why he has given such full-throated support to the Russian war in Ukraine. I mean, it has been so uncritical that even some of Kirill's own clergy have begun pushing back and suggesting that, you know, maybe our public tone shouldn't be quite so, you know, for lack of a better word, political and seemingly pro-Kremlin. You might remember that in the spring, Pope Francis actually revealed to the press that in a Zoom call with Kirill, he had warned him not to come off as an altar boy for the Kremlin. Maybe Kirill just didn't want to be reminded of that verbiage. But in any event, you know, I mean, there, Kazakhstan is nevertheless a country in which the Russian Orthodox Church has an important footprint. Whether Kirill is there or not, Pope Francis is going to be addressing the Russian Orthodox while he's in Kazakhstan, and his message undoubtedly will be, look, I don't begrudge you your national pride. I don't begrudge you your sense of affiliation, your, your sense of belonging to the Russian, the broader Russian nation. But I would just remind you that as Christians, we are not fundamentally nationalists. Our attachment is supposed to be to the gospel. We'll see how that plays out. Second empty chair this week is going to belong to President Xi Jinping of China. Because here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, it turns out the Pope isn't the only major world leader who is going to be in Kazakhstan this week. On Wednesday, the 14th of September, Xi Jinping of China is also going to be in the country to conclude a trade deal. It's actually his first foreign trip since China's strict COVID lockdowns began two years ago. And by sheer coincidence, it's coming at the same time the Pope is in town. Now, as of this moment, as of me recording this video, there was no sign that the Pope and President Xi were going to meet while they're both in town. Now, by the time this airs, maybe something will have come together. At this moment, however, it seems unlikely. There are at least a couple of reasons why President Xi probably would not be anxious for a tete-a-tete -tete with Pope Francis right now. One is, 
that China's controversial deal with the Vatican on the appointment of Catholic bishops in China is currently up for renewal. China has to make, and the Vatican has already indicated they want to renew the thing, but China has to make a decision as to whether they're going to do it. Xi may not want to take questions as to what his intentions are. I think the other reason, probably, is that in just a few days' time, in Hong Kong, the trial, what some would call a show trial, of Cardinal Joseph Zinn, the former Catholic bishop of Hong Kong, who is currently facing criminal indictment under China's national security law for supporting pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong, that trial is going to begin. Many people would look at that as a fairly grotesque violation of religious freedom. President Xi may not want to answer questions right now as to why that trial, I mean, why, why Cardinal Zinn was charged in the first place and why in the world this wasn't resolved before it went to trial. And so, you know, from his point of view, discretion may be the better part of valor. The final empty seat in Kazakhstan belongs to Vladimir Putin. Now, Putin was never supposed to be in Kazakhstan, but nevertheless, the nation of Kazakhstan shares a, a longer, wider, more extensive land border with Russia than any other country on Earth. And, you know, I mean, Pope Francis has said repeatedly he wants to go to Russia, but no indication that's going to happen. This may actually be the closest he gets during his reign. And so the attempt to appeal to Putin to, to use this trip as a kind of platform to at least indirectly say to the Russian leadership, look, we share a common faith, we share common values, we share a history. But what you are currently doing in Ukraine is putting all that at risk. Could you please rethink all of that? Pope may not say any of that quite so directly, and he certainly will not be addressing Putin by name when he does so. But you can bet your bottom dollar that when Francis speaks, he will have Vladimir Putin in mind, and that when he does so, the Kremlin will be listening. Stay tuned to Crux for full coverage of Pope Francis in Kazakhstan. You know how I know we're going to have the best coverage in the world? Because my wife, Elise Allen, is going to be our correspondent on the papal plane covering all of it. And I can guarantee you that means A-plus, best in the business, saturation coverage. She'll be over it like saran wrap. Okay, full coverage. All right, God save the queen. So Queen Elizabeth II, after a remarkable, historically unprecedented 70-year run, on the British throne, died last week at the age of 96. Now, we all know the outpouring of grief and respect and affection that triggered in Great Britain and all around the world. Pope Francis was among those world leaders who made a public statement. The Pope praised Queen Elizabeth for her constancy, her unstinting service, also her faith in Jesus Christ, because let us not forget that Queen Elizabeth Constitutionally, the English monarch is the head of the Church of England, and Queen Elizabeth, by all accounts, was a sincere Christian believer. And the Pope paid tribute to all of that. Now, getting you might ask, aside from the fact of both being monarchs, you know, what would a Pope and a, a British monarch have in common? Well, I guess here's the thing. 
the, the power of the British monarchy has been progressively limited since the Magna Carta in 1215, and certainly by the time Elizabeth got there, you know, the British monarch no longer had any actual hard power. I mean, they, you know, it, Elizabeth never had to make a decision about tax policy. She never had to decide whether or not England should go to war. You know, she never had to decide who to appoint as the Secretary of the Treasury. She never had to do any of the things that conventional politicians do. But in that sense, it was very freeing because instead of the hurly-burly, right, the grubby details of conventional politics, she was free to become the soul of a British nation. And she did that in a way that I think most people would say was just historically unparalleled. And similarly, popes since the 19th century, they have been shorn of all their real political power, too, in the conventional sense. I mean, you know, the Vatican no longer has an army. It doesn't levy taxes. They, they don't have any secular authority of any kind. And yet, I think you could make a very good argument that 20th and 21st century popes have never been more relevant because they were freed up to become a kind of global voice of conscience and a point of reference in the global conversation that doesn't depend upon a particular political agenda. It doesn't depend on the exercise of hard power. In other words, my point is that both Queen Elizabeth, in her own way, and modern popes have been the quintessential examples of what Harvard political scientist Joseph Nye would call soft power. That is, the power of ideals, the power of decency, the power of personal example, rather than the coercive power of the state. Now, listen, I'm not saying you can just throw the coercive power of the state out the window, right? Somebody, unfortunately, has to do the heavy lifting of making decisions on things like taxes and the use of force and police policy and, you know, I mean, all of these other things that politicians and other officials have to do. However, I think there is also a critically important space in global culture for those people who appeal exclusively to the better angels of our nature and to whom our reactions don't depend on the divisive forces of politics, but instead, hopefully, on the unitive force of ideals and inspiration. That was Queen Elizabeth, and that is the same spot, I think, in global affairs to which modern popes aspire. All right, finally, before we wrap up this week, two quick shout-outs I would like to deliver. First, a shout-out to Bishop Robert Barron, American Bishop Robert Barron, currently the Bishop of Winona and Rochester in Minnesota, formerly the Auxiliary Bishop of Los Angeles, known as the founder of Word on Fire. That's his ministry of evangelization, which has as its specialty outreach to the nuns. And no, I don't mean he's evangelizing religious women. I mean N-O-N-E-S, nuns. That is, modern men and women with no particular religious affiliation, particularly those who have their living and being in digital space, right? The highways and byways of cyberspace. That's Bishop Barron's specialty. He was in Rome this week. He spoke at a gathering of the Pontifical Academy for Sciences. But while he was in town, 
we at Crooks were honored to have the opportunity to put together a reception for Bishop Barron. And this was kind of his opportunity to introduce Word on Fire on the Roman stage, because he wants it to be a gift not merely to the church in the United States in his time, but also to the church around the world. And as the astute, you know, student of church history that he is, he knows if you're going to do that, you need to have a footprint in Rome. And so, just want to say a quick thank you to Bishop Barron and the good people at Word on Fire. They are partners of Crux. They help make our work possible. We're deeply grateful for everything you do, and we look forward to greater collaboration ahead. My other shout out this week is to my wife's family. So this week, my wife's stepfather, hale and hearty Dutch Reformed Calvinist, by the name of Stuart Van Kooten. Uh, the guy is built like a tank, by the way, but the most charming human being you're ever going to meet. And then my wife's mom, Sherry Van Kooten, and her sister, Carissa Harris. They were all in town this week. They came over in part for the reception with Bishop Barron, but quite honestly, oh, and they also met the Pope. But if you were going to rank the three most important people for them this week, Frankly, probably the Pope would finish in second place and Bishop Barron would be in third. My wife was easily the star attraction for them. But in any event, they stayed at our house and we had a glorious week with them. I mean, it was just an absolute joy from start to finish. They charmed the socks off of everybody they met, including our two pugs, Gus and Mina, who are now bewildered and adrift because they're not around anymore. I just want to say that, you know, I married my wife because I fell in love with her. I didn't really realize I was winning the lottery by also joining one of the greatest families on earth. But this week certainly brought that home to me. So, Stuart, Sherry, Carissa, thank you for the past week. Thank you for everything. You're in my heart forever. All right, that is our show this week. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be back here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, have a fantastic and blessed week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will talk to you again soon.